All right. Well, welcome to Emmaus Church this morning. So glad you're here. My name's Nathan, and uh, I'm excited about this morning. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. We're going to be in a book in the New Testament called Acts. It's on page 765, or at least that's close to it. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. Also, if, there's, if you're sitting on the aisle and there's a basket underneath your chair, uh, if you could hand that basket down. If you'd like to hand off contact information by filling out a communication card or you'd like to pass off a, a, a prayer request or any kind of a comment, you're welcome to fill out a card. We'll collect these in a few minutes after I speak. And then finally, um, this morning, I want to alert you to a baptism gathering that we're having right after church today, about 1230 at the Keelings House, which is a half a mile away. It's very close, and you can text this number to get um, directions, text ECC directions to this phone number, or it's right there on 5th Street. So I um, want to encourage you to join with us. Five folks are being baptized, and you play a critical role as their church. We don't baptize people all by themselves on mountaintops. We baptize people in community because they're being embraced into this community and into the historic community of faith. And so it's always good to have a bunch of folks from the church there for that. Um, so you're welcome to bring lunch and join us. All right. I'm just going to go with this. Um, good. Let me pray for a minute. Grateful, Lord, for this morning. Grateful this, for this community. Grateful for your presence here with us. Ask for your mercy and grace. Face challenging realities. Looking for restoration. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't remember the exact moment, I don't remember the exact day or even the exact week, but I remember the general season when I realized at a new level, at a deeper level, at a level that actually mattered, uh, that God was with me in my pain. Um, it was sometime during the first year following, the, uh, following our son's cancer diagnosis. And initially, when you experience pain, and you probably understand this, you're, you're just trying to survive the moment. You feel as though you were just hit in the head, the orientation of life is completely missing, you're stunned, you're just trying to stand up. Uh, then, once you catch your breath, you begin to take in the painful reality and the painful ramifications of that reality. And uh, it becomes overwhelming, so much so that really the only solution you can imagine is just for the pain to go away. Just take it away. It's just got to end. It's got to stop. It's all you can think about is when will this stop? God, when will you take this away? Sometimes it's a bee sting and you know that that's going to go away in just a few minutes. And sometimes it's something much more serious than a bee sting and you know that it's going to take a long time. And that's when it happened. That's the season in which it happened. When the pain was intense... And I knew that the intensity of the pain was going to last a long, long time. There was no quick fix for this. This was not going to just be taken away quickly. And that's when somebody who knew me and somebody who knew God and somebody who knew pain said to me, Nathan, you can't wait for the pain to be over to find God. You have to find God in the midst of the pain. And when I picked myself up off the floor, and I mean literally, I started a new season in my journey with Jesus. Where I was looking for him in the dark. 
I was looking for him in the wilderness. I was looking for him in the pain because I knew I was going to be there for a while. And I needed to be with him there too. And in his mercy, he met with me there. He was with me in the pain. And that experience, which for me lasted several years, it changed me. And it changed the way I pastor people, changed the way I serve as a spiritual guide to people. I don't encourage people anymore to place their hope for comfort in the absence of pain. I encourage people instead to find and seek their source of comfort right in the midst of the pain. Right. Now, when you experience pain... Uh, people begin, and people know that, people begin to share their pain with you. And I know that you know this. I'm sure it's the same with you. Once you experience a certain kind of grief, once you experience a certain kind of loss, once you experience a certain kind of disappointment, others with similar experiences will find you and they will share their experiences with you as well because they know you get it. They know you understand the kind of darkness that they're experiencing. I was at a birthday party recently, and I met this group of women, and the only thing that really connected these women was their shared experience of having lost their husbands recently. So they had a good friendship, but it was based around, initially at least, uh, a shared pain, a common pain. They understood each other, right? Now, everybody experiences pain, and when you find somebody with a certain kind of pain that is similar to your certain kind of pain, then it can feel like you've got an instant bond with them and a powerful bond with them because they understand. And so as more people are experiencing pain, and as more people who are experiencing pain share their pain with us, uh, I notice a few trends. And one of the trends that I notice is this, that it's easy to get stuck in your pain. Have you noticed that? So, whereas getting stuck in your pain is, is, to a certain degree, I think, understandable, it's not necessary. So, it's sad when it happens, when you get stuck in your pain for a long time. And I'm certainly not saying, please understand that I'm not saying, get over your sadness. I'm not sure that's part of the deal, frankly. I'm not sure we get over our sadness. Right? But I am saying that in addition to this truth that God is with you in your pain is another truth, which is this. God wants to lead you through it. He wants to lead you through the pain that you're experiencing. So we're in the middle of this series called Becoming Whole. It's a series on emotional health. And in the first half of the series, we talked about growing in health. We talked about uh, topics like honesty about our will, our ability to choose. We talked about forming healthy habits. Last week I started kind of the second half of this series, which is focused on dealing with pain and brokenness. And I, what I tried to get across last week was simply this message. Please deal with your pain. Please stop ignoring it. Please stop pretending that it doesn't exist. Please stop trying to watch TV so it just goes away. Please deal with your pain and with, with your brokenness. And what I want to do in the next couple weeks is I want to address a couple specific kinds of pain. This sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? Uh, in the next couple weeks, I want to talk uh, about a couple. I want to talk about the pain that comes from grief and loss. And I want to talk about the pain that comes from failure today. Uh, I know the lines between the two might be a little bit fuzzy because often we grieve when we fail, but not all losses are failures. So I want to talk about both grief and failure, but I don't want to talk about them at the same time because it'll be too complicated. So today I just I want to talk about them separately. Today I want to talk about 
uh, failure. So becoming whole, part six, a few thoughts on don't forget failure. Can you think of a time when you failed? And yes, I'm asking you to, to do that. I'm asking you to think about a time when you failed. You, you screwed up. You made a big mistake. You did not succeed. Maybe it was a careless mistake. Maybe it was a full-blown sin. But you failed. Whatever you hoped would happen didn't happen. You pictured it working out like this, but it didn't work out like you pictured. You failed. You didn't succeed. Uh, and the reason that you failed is because it was your fault. I mean, it wasn't like it didn't work out because of a bunch of other random circumstances. That's not what I'm talking I'm talking about it was you. That's the question I asked myself this week, and immediately... When I asked myself this question this week, when have I failed? I thought about a few embarrassing moments. I thought about sort of silly, foolish mistakes that I've made. Uh, but when I, when I want to think about, specifically when I want to think about my failures, I, I don't. I don't want to, I, I, I block them out. Admit, the first feeling that I have when I challenge myself to think about my failures is I don't want to think about my failures. I want to forget my failures. I never want to think about them again. Um, I think that it's, there's, there's a special kind of pain that comes from failure, and I don't want to face that kind of pain. It's, um, it can be hard to face. It can be hard to process through. I'd rather just forget about it. I think we all experience that to some degree. And if you're an achiever, if you are the oldest or the only child, if you receive a certain amount of um, sense of value in pleasing people, uh, if you have those who, who count on you for things, then your failures are probably your most painful moments. Yeah, your true failures. So, of course, uh, we don't want to think about it. But here's my thesis. Here's, a, here's the big idea this morning. You and I should not forget our failures. We should not forget our failures because our failures are gold mines of insight into the truth about ourselves, about God, and about life. And if, if we learn the truth about ourselves, about God, and about life through our failures, then even this kind of pain, this special kind of pain that comes from failing, even this kind of pain can be redeemed and restored. And maybe in the end, our failures will not be final. Uh, in the end, our failures will not be complete. In other words, if we can learn the value, the valuable truth through these painful experiences, then maybe um, they, will, they, will be they will be shown to have had some value in our lives after all. So rather than to deny our failures, pretend our failures didn't happen, try to ignore our failures, block them out of our memory, what if we looked at our failures as real growing up experiences, like big boy, big girl growing up experiences? What if we prayed, God, what do you have to reveal to me through my failures? And this is an important distinction. The question that you ask, please this, don't ask, why did this happen? That's, that's another question, and it's way too complicated. Don't ask, why did my business fail? Why did this happen to me? Instead, I want to encourage you, ask what. Ask the what question. What do you want to show me through this? What do you want to reveal to me about myself? What do you want to reveal through my failure about you, God? What do you want to reveal about life? One more point, just to be clear. Some of you, uh, for some of you, things haven't worked out in your life. And it's not because it was your fault. It's not because it, it didn't work out. The situation didn't work out, but it's not your fault. That's not what I'm talking about today. 
Okay, that's another category of, of things. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the things that you have done, the things that you have failed to do that you should have done that caused you pain when you think about them because you know that you did the wrong thing. That's what I'm talking about. Are we clear? <laughs> I'm going right in on that, on that painful spot right there. That's what I want to talk about because that's what I'm trying to ignore in my personal life. That's what I'm not allowing God in to in my personal life, and he's got to come in there. He's got to come into that darkness, or else that constantly exists forever as a closet in my life that is just this little painful cesspool that is not going to be restored and redeemed, right? There's this organization, there's this part of um, Google called X, and they describe themselves as a dream factory. They, uh, they talk about taking moon shots. That's what they do. They basically design innovative products at Google. And, and X is run by a dude named Astro Teller. For real. That's his name. And he, in his TED Talk, he, he talks about how they, the only way they could actually encourage their people to try to really develop truly innovative things was to reward failure. So that's what they do. When they decide finally to kill a project because it's not going to work, it failed. When they decide to finally kill it after all these people have spent all this time and energy and resources trying to develop something that doesn't work, well, when they kill it, they, they bring all the people on the project up front and they celebrate them. And they give them vacations and they give them financial bonuses. And they, cl and they clap for them. Um, and Astro Teller says that they reward failure because of the value of learning what doesn't work. And I like this. I like it. He's basically saying he's reframing failure as learning and then saying, I want to reward that so that you're not afraid to fail. I like that. Okay, hear me. I like that. But that also is not exactly what I'm talking about this morning. Okay, I'm talking about real failures, sometimes sinful, always painful. I didn't do what I should have done. I did what I shouldn't have done. I didn't succeed. I did the wrong thing. Failures. And I didn't do them because I was trying to research for something. My motivation was not to learn what it might be like, right? There was no, as way too admirable of a motivation in, in my case because I was actually just a straight up failure. And I'm saying that rather than try to ignore, forget, try to deny, never again think about these things, we should not be afraid to revisit them in order to see the truth that God has to reveal to us about ourselves, about God, about life through these failures. Let me give you an example from the Bible, and I hope this will make this much clearer. In the early days of the Jesus movement, a life from the life of one of the most famous Christians uh, of all time. It's recorded in the book of Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. Sometimes we just shorten it. We call it Acts. Uh, it's, it's written by a non-Jewish doctor named Luke. He's the same guy who writes the Gospel of Luke. Acts is his second book, and in the early chapters of this second book called Acts, Luke tells a story of this incredibly successful man, this well-educated, super ambitious Jewish guy named Saul. Saul was young. Saul was up and coming. Saul was bold. He had studied the Jewish law under the most famous Jewish teacher in the land. Saul was the picture of success. And then this movement begins from within Saul's own community, the Jewish community. And this movement that begins from within the Jewish community believes that this Nazarene carpenter is the Son of God, is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the guy that was just sentenced to death for heresy. But there's this movement from within Judaism that believes that this guy, Jesus, is the Messiah. And this movement is exploding in size. It's exploding in influence. And so within months of Jesus' crucifixion, 
This movement grows to include thousands of Jewish people, and this is simply not acceptable. So the Jewish leaders dispatch Paul, or Saul at the time, to go as a champion of Jewish orthodoxy to crush this Jesus movement once and for all. In Acts 7, um, Luke begins to talk about Saul, and we begin to see what his, uh, his, his role is with the Christians. In, in Acts 7, the first Christian martyrdom happens. The first leader of the Christian church named Stephen, who is a deacon, is, is killed. He's preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. He's confronting the stubborn religious rigidity of the Jews. And so they kill him. A bunch of zealous Jews led by Saul, they kill Stephen with rocks. In Acts 9, Luke records the story of how Saul obtains papers from the highest Jewish authority in the land, papers that are going to give him permission to raid local synagogues, specifically in this town called Damascus, so that he can look for Christians, take them out of their places of worship, right like now. He'd come in, take them, and then put them into jail. And so it was while, while Saul was on his road, on his way to Damascus, that his mission to preserve the purity of the Jewish religion failed. It failed. You're familiar with the story. If you are, it's probably because you're Christian and you don't immediately think of Saul's road to Damascus experience as a failure. You think of it as his conversion, which is an interesting observation, isn't it? You don't think of it as a failure. You think of it as a radical life-changing conversion. But later in his life, Paul makes it clear what his intents were. This is from Acts 26. He says, I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This is Saul who becomes Paul looking back on his failure. He says, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to the other to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. So success for Paul, okay, success I should say for Saul was the complete eradication of the Jesus movement, once and for all. And if you can pry yourself away for a minute from your Christian perspective on Saul, who's renamed Paul, ends up becoming one of the most effective Christians in the history of the church. If you can pry yourself away for a minute from your Christian perspective, you can see that Saul is a complete failure. He said, I'm going to end this heretical movement. He's given the authority by the, those in charge to end this heretical movement. He's given the power and the resources to end this heretical movement, and he completely fails to end it. So here's what happens in Acts chapter 9. Saul nears Damascus on his journey, and suddenly this light from heaven flashes around him. He falls to the ground. He hears this voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And it's like lowercase. It's like, who are you, sir? He has no idea. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So that's a supernatural experience, and it is entirely physical. Right? It renders Saul blind for three days. He doesn't eat or drink. He is devastated. He is wrecked. Saul believed he was doing the right thing, um, but he's doing the wrong thing. Right? I can imagine Saul returning home in Acts 7, a couple chapters earlier, the night he killed Stephen. And I can imagine him writing in his journal saying, successful day today. Uh, 
we made uh, practical steps towards silencing those who are seeking to destroy the faith of our fathers. I'm going to sleep well tonight. And you got to understand, this is what his motive is, right? This is where he's coming from. But now in this dramatic fashion, Saul has shown that he is wrong. He's 100% wrong. What he thought was wrong, what he believed is wrong, what he did is wrong. And as he sits in his blindness, he is unable to function. He can't eat, can't drink. He's got to be thinking, my life, my passion, uh, my sense of identity is completely wrong. I thought I was serving God, but in fact I was not. I was completely wrong. And we might think, well, gosh, he was trying to do the right thing after all. It took the resurrected Jesus to, like, change his mind, right? But there's more. There's more. And I want to show you the more part. Later in his life, Paul gives a fuller account of this scene, of what happens. We think of it as happening in Acts chapter 9. So we have the first account in Acts chapter 9, written by Luke, who is serving in this case as the narrator, telling us what happened. There's also a second account in Acts chapter 26, also written by Luke, but in this time, Luke is quoting Paul verbatim. He is telling you exactly what Paul is saying as he recounts his own story. And this is what he says in his account. He says, about noon I was on the road. And a light from heaven, uh, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying in Aramaic to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So this is essentially the same thing we just read in Acts chapter 9, right? But then in the Acts 26 account, Saul adds this, Paul adds this. He says, then Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then Paul says, who are you, Lord? And the response, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So what in the world? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. There's this great old Johnny Cash song where he quotes this verse, and, but he quotes it in the King James, and he says, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. Right? So it's an agricultural term not familiar to me, would have been totally familiar to anybody in the first century. A goad was a stick with a, a sharp spike on the end of it, kind of like a spur on a cowboy boot, except they're not riding the ox, they're walking next to the ox, and they're goading it along. They're encouraging it forward with the stick with the spike. So if the ox pushes back against the goad, it hurts the ox, right? If the donkey kicks against the goad, it hurts the donkey. Any kind of pushback, stubborn, ultimate act of rebellion against the prompting of the master ends up hurting you. And so the resurrected Jesus says to the stubborn Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So some wonder if Jesus' appearing to Saul on the road to Damascus is really the first time Saul has a sense that what he's doing is wrong, that, what, that the direction he's moving is, a, is, the, is the wrong direction in opposing the Christians. Maybe Jesus has been pressuring uh, Saul for some time, guiding him, goading him forward to reconsider his thoughts, to reconsider his beliefs, his actions. And maybe Saul's been resisting. Maybe Saul's even been kicking against the goads, right? And so in his refusal to change, he has now kicked against the goads and he has found himself in that place that 12-step programs refer to as rock bottom, Okay? He is at his bottom now. He can't see, he can't eat, he can't drink because he is beginning to realize that sickening feeling when you know, oh, snap, 
I failed. I really messed this up. I did the wrong thing. I thought I was doing the right thing, or maybe he didn't. But he made a huge mistake, and not just in the view of the Jewish establishment, but in a cosmic sense. He has opposed God. (laughs) Right? He has. And in the days and the weeks and the months that follows, he realizes how desperately he has failed. Now, probably none of us have failed at the epic level that Saul failed. His was truly an epic failure. You may feel like you've failed epically. Uh, But I would think that Saul's trying to silence the savior of the world is probably a bigger failure than anything you or I have done. But here's why I told you that story. Paul's failure, even though it's different from yours and it's different from mine, is similar to yours and it's similar to mine in this way. It was a gold mine of insight into the truth of who Saul was, who God is, and what life is all about. Was Saul's mistake a real failure? Was his failure real? I would say yes, absolutely. It was real. But in the mercy of God, Paul faces it. He processes it. He deals with it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't pretend it doesn't happen. And in facing his failure, all kinds of truth is revealed to him about himself, about God, about life. If I were Paul... If I were Paul, I would have just left the religious life at this point, and I would have gone and become a tent maker, because he was a pretty good tent maker. When he fails out of being a Pharisee, that's what he does to make a living. He makes tents. I would have just bounced out at this point completely, because I have completely messed up any kind of spiritual authority that I have had up to this point. I would have felt like I tried that, I made a mess of it, and I failed. I'm done. And that's what people say to me. I've tried marriage. It didn't work. I failed at it. I'm living with my girlfriend out of convenience. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to face that failure. I'm not going to do it. I I tried to talk to my kids about X, Y, or Z. I made it worse. It didn't work out. I failed at that. I don't feel qualified to do that, whatever. I'm not going to do that anymore. I tried business. That's what they say. I tried doing that risky spiritual thing. Let me trust God with something. I tried that. I failed. I tried getting physically healthy, lasted three days, I failed, right? But, you know, there's a special kind of pain that comes with failure. There is. There is a special kind of pain that comes with failure, and i just rather not think about that anymore. I told you Paul's story, friends. I told you a story of failure because he faced his failure. He went back over it and over it, not to beat himself up with it. Not to ask why, but to ask what. God, what do you want to reveal to me about me? What do you want to reveal to me about you? What do you want to reveal to me about life? Friends, there's so much more about Paul. Uh, he goes and spends time with disciples of Jesus. He, he goes into the very synagogues from which he was going to arrest followers of Jesus, and instead he preaches that Jesus is the one they should follow. Um, the Jewish leaders see his mission as an absolute failure. They try to kill him. He goes from, post, from poster boy to wanted for dead uh, in, in, in a day. He goes back to Jerusalem where he killed Stephen and some others. The Christians are afraid of him. They don't want to have anything to do with him. This guy named Barnabas welcomes him, eventually introduces him to Peter, James, and John, others 
others of the uh, apostles of Jesus, and convinces them that, that Paul has, in fact, changed. And then Paul goes on to start dozens of churches and to write two-thirds of the New Testament that you're probably holding in your hands. And none of this is possible, I want to say, none of this is possible if Paul ignores his failures and opens up a tent-making shop. None of it happens. None of it is going to go put into process unless Paul stays in his pain and long enough to face it, come to terms with it, and work through the pain. And to ask God to reveal what God wants to reveal as he humbles himself enough, which is key, to face his failures. By the way, aren't you sick of the whole political talk right now? Aren't you just like so tired of it all? I'm so over it. Uh, wouldn't it be refreshing if you turn on the TV tonight and somebody held a press conference and they said, oh, thanks so much for that question about that thing that I said or that thing that I did? Yeah. Uh, I totally screwed up. I, I was a failure. I completely bombed my responsibility there. It's my fault. Yeah, that gross mishandling of highly classified information and then the destruction of all those computers. My bad. I, I, I failed. My, my um, continued lewd, rude, uh, reckless comments towards large groups of people that I continue to make, I am big on failure, really, really big on failure. I'm huge. No one is huger than me on failure, right? Believe me. That's good. Can you, uh, it's hard to imagine that, right? It's hard to imagine that because politicians almost never admit they failed at everything, at anything. But St. Paul did. He admitted that he failed. And you and I are invited to do the same thing, to admit that we've failed. Because Paul does face his failure, he's filled with insights about human nature, about the nature of God, about life. And his insights literally changed the world. They literally changed the way you and I understand this whole thing about being in relationship with God. Insights like this, really quickly. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Circle grace increased. Okay, that, is a, that is an insight that comes from humbly facing failure. Okay. Or insights like this. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Right. Circle power. Circle weakness. Okay. That is an understanding that was able to be received by a man who was humble enough to look at weakness and power in totally different ways. Or finally this having disarmed the powers and the authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the most incredible one for, for me. Paul is calling to mind the image of Jesus dying on the cross, bloody, beat, naked, publicly humiliated, and says this is Christ's moment of triumph. Everybody, and I mean everybody, thought Jesus dying on the cross meant Jesus failed. But Paul is given by God this incredible insight into this truth. And so he declares, no, this is no failure. This is triumph. 
This is love and forgiveness of sin. This is the love and grace of God for all of the world. Circle triumph. Circle cross. Friends, you you just don't get to a place of real meaningful insight without being humbled and then returning to your own place of failure and asking God, reveal the truth to me. Reveal the truth to me. What if your failure is your conversion? What if your moment of greatest failure is that desperately needed moment of humility that actually changes everything in your life by the grace of God? Let's pray together. I'm so grateful for these, Lord. willing to come week after week to consider really hard emotional reality. I pray for courage. Pray for courage for us. We don't want to slide along on the surface of Christianity in a way that makes no difference to us and to those we love and to the world. We want to go deep. We want to experience truth that disturbs the bedrock at the bottom of our assumptions, causes us to really be free, really love people really live above the fray and the chaos, all the accusations. Please give us a freedom that comes from being truly humble, not being ashamed of our failures to the point that we hide them, but being so confident in your grace that we go, yeah, yeah, that happened. I did that. And let me tell you how God has set me free now. Pray for your help in this process, Lord. Help to engage it with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't you stand up with me? It's good to see some of you folks in town for the baptisms. I hope to be able to say hi to you today. We want to take a few minutes to greet one another. This is more than a greeting time. This is something that we do because we believe that Christianity happens in community. And so just for a few minutes, having hopefully received some grace from the Lord today through the preaching of his word, will you extend that same grace to somebody else in a real tangible way, like a hug or a handshake or an introduction, so that folks know and believe on a tangible level that they're welcomed by God. Amen. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thanks. Take a moment to greet one another. We'll come back in just a minute.